0: Well, greetings. I'm Pastor Evan. Glad that you're here with us this morning. And uh, we are going to continue in Psalm 90. And I invite you to find Psalm chapter 90, verses 7 through 12 this morning, however you're reading Scripture. Uh, while you're finding that, um, this uh, the challenge that we're doing each week with this is that I'm challenging you to create a one-sentence or even down-to-one-word prayer. Uh, I heard from one or two people last week who... Uh, enjoyed this exercise, um, and it's not a response to the sermon, it's a response to the psalm. That's what I'm asking you to respond to. Um, that's why we're here, we're proclaiming the word of God, and we're hearing Psalm 90 this morning. And so I'll, I'll give a little space at the end so you can write down in your little notebooks or wherever you want to write down uh, that one sentence or one even one word prayer. Um, and then I challenge you as well, uh, put it in your calendar or put it in your prayer routine, whatever you have, so that you actually do it. Um, I know I even was challenged with that this week and didn't get it done every day. Um, So it's a challenge. Even I struggle with it. So let's read Psalm 90, verses 7 through 12. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath we finish our years with a moan our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass away and we fly or pass and we fly away if only we knew the power of your anger your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. As we consider this text, and it's it's challenging, this section. There's no question about it. It has some terms right away that we're confronted with with uh, consumed and terrified, sins, iniquities, wrath, indignation. And I want to walk through some of those terms now, and then consider the path of walking in God's wrath away from his care and consider the path towards him, which I think uh, the psalm and a parallel psalm give us information and indication on. Let's just start with uh, the term sins and iniquities, particularly that word iniquities that's there. Uh, throughout both the Old and New Testament, there's about five major words that get used for sin. Um, this is one of them. This is one of the Old Testament words. And it it means something that is morally objectionable, very simply. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. Um, it's the opposite of God's character. If we commit an in iniquity, it's the opposite of who God is. We are created in the image of God. We should act like part of the family, basically. Um, and when we uh, commit an in iniquity, we're acting the opposite of how the family operates, of how our creator operates. We don't look like him in that moment. The thing about iniquity that I find interesting that are two things to qualify is the intention doesn't seem to matter in the word. You transgressed. That's it. It was wrong and you did it. It doesn't matter if you had a good intention in the sin. It doesn't matter if it was a sin of omission or accidental or you purposely meant to do it. That's not built into the word. You did something that was the opposite of God's character and that's it. And we can do things. Uh, in this life that are that where we're trying to sort of be polite or kind, but they're still the opposite of God's character. So even in the body of Christ, for instance, uh, we might be in conversation with somebody and we know that a word of encouragement would be a really good thing as the next step in the conversation and yet we dodge and don't give it. Well, that actually could be an iniquity. We didn't lean into, what we were doing. Maybe it's not, maybe it is. Depends on the circumstance in that case. Sometimes we're in conversations where we can tell more truth than we did. We're trying to spare someone something, but actually if we don't tell what needs to be told, sometimes that could be deceitful. We have good intention, but we actually walked across a line, perhaps in doing that. Or we told too much. I won't ask who's guilty of that because I think we'd all get hands up on that one. Or, and this can happen to all of us as well, uh, we just had a bad attitude when we did the right thing. Ever had those days where you go to work or go do something in the, in, at home or whatever? It's the right thing to do, but your heart sure isn't in it, right? Those, any of those things can be in the category of an iniquity and more, obviously, more. Um, but the other thing that is important to note about that is that intention isn't in view in iniquity. It's a sin. It really doesn't matter what the intent was and there's guilt. And this is a thing we need to actually hang on to here as we consider this. There's guilt associated with an iniquity. There's a weight to that. Whether it's a big iniquity or a small iniquity, the weight might change depending on what it is, but it still weighs us down. We still feel that guilt. And, and kind of the way the psalm presents it, the, the weight of that guilt, especially verse nine gets into this, the, the weight of that guilt feels much like if you went through the uh, security line at the airport and they said, all right, we're going to unpack all of your luggage and lay it out for everybody to see. And also now we're going to pat you down and do a whole bunch of stuff. That's the weight. It feels like it's exposed and weighing you down and then it's laid before God. Now, if we put that and and start looking at this word wrath and indignation that come together, which is kind of the same thing, all that is is anger. But it's righteous anger. It's anger that's been aimed at sin. So uh, this was revelatory to me years ago when I was a hospital chaplain. This is the first time somebody pointed out to me that anger isn't always anger, especially men. You know, we, We think we're angry when we're sad or rejected or whatever it is. But real anger is typically, not always, but typically when you're threatened in some way. Or, you know, like uh, the example I like to use is when you're being tailgated and somebody's really close, you know, you can get angry. That's probably anger in that case. And if you're a tailgater, stop it. But that's real anger probably in that case. But one of the things to recognize is, um, generally as humans, our emotions are not righteous. That doesn't mean they're all bad. Right, Emotions are God-given, and and we experience them, and we experience them rightly many times, but quite often we also experience them with a mix of everything that we bring with them, sinful or not, sin committed against us or not. And so our emotions particular, our anger, has a lot of baggage that comes with it. It doesn't just come with the incident that's happening, but with everything that happened before as well. Whereas with God, 100% of the time that he is angry, it is righteous, because he can do no other then be righteous. It's always going to be righteous anger when God is angry. It's sort of to play off a a line that C.S. Lewis has. Uh, If a straight line, you say, well, that straight line isn't straight. It's not a straight line, obviously, because a straight line has to be straight by definition. God has to be righteous by definition. That's who he is. He can be no other. Uh, Here's a, a commentary on this from Walter Elwald, that I think says it well. He, he brings it home for us. He says, righteous indignation refers to the, and that's another way to say this, wrath, refers to the extreme displeasure of a holy heart, unable to tolerate sin of any kind. The anger of God contains this element. Man should be good, yet he sins, and God is angry. I think that spells it out so simply. Man should be good. We're created in God's image. Yet we sin. And God is angry about that. God is angry at the sin. And if we continue down and take the, uh, just a little piece of the Roman road to talk about why this matters and what are the implications, the, the thing about sin and these indignations and uh, the iniquities, excuse me, is that we're all guilty of sin. Romans 3.23 tells us that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So everybody in this room... Newsflash, we're all guilty of sin. We we all have done iniquities and others. Second thing is sin ruins everything. We're all guilty of that as well. Romans 5.12, Therefore just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Which tells us a third thing about sin is that it doesn't just ruin everything, it destroys it. Destruction follows sin. Everywhere it goes. Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just when we thought all the news was bad, all of a sudden we got some good news at the end. Jesus Christ fixes it. But sin ruins it all. And we're all part of the problem. So by your, uh, if you put this together, the sin and the wrath we come back to the psalm. We go to verse seven. It talks about uh, you are. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You might have some different words for consumed and terrified in your translation. And I say use them. Put them together with what's there. Right? Consumed here means finished off. It means phasers set to vaporize. Right? It's it's done. And terrified. In this case, some translations have overwhelmed. If you could, jam those two words together and you've got the strength of this. terrorwhelmed or something like that. You're terrified by your indignation. The word there is as an army headed for disaster. The army has to go in, but they know they're going to lose. And it's going to be bad. That's the strength of what's going on here. And if we understand that we're guilty of sin and that it ruins everything and it simply causes destruction everywhere, then those first words must ring true in our lives. We should be overwhelmed because without intervention, we're headed for what this says. We're consumed by your anger. In Psalm 90, verse 9, if we go to that, it says, all our days pass away under your wrath and we finish our years with a moan. God's wrath we should recognize it's actually aimed at sin. But here's the distinction, and I can only, I, I, this best demonstrated through a Far Side comic. So it'll come up on the screen, it says, bummer of a birthmark, Hal, have you seen this one? And the deer has a target on his chest that's his birthmark. That, I thought that'd get more laughter than it did. Take that one off the list for the future. <laughs> Um, this is where you know I'm not a stand-up comedian, right? Um, The thing about it, the reason that this is powerful, and this is what I visualize when I think of God's wrath and sin, is that sin is like that target on us until it's taken care of. God's wrath is not aimed at you and me, it's aimed at sin. But if we're living under the weight and the guilt of sin, then God's wrath is actually aimed at us. Because the stain of sin is on us. It hasn't been taken care of. That's the deal. God's intent is that you and I would be free from the guilt and stain of sin. And up until that's resolved, it's like a giant target on us. And the righteous indignation is going to consume us because the sin is on us still. I want to talk about within the history of Israel then, God's covenant people, and you know, word, this is a psalm of Moses. I actually want to skip over to Psalm 106, which rounds out this section of the psalms, to look at two instructive moments in the life of Israel that tell us what it's like to continue to walk with that wrath attached to you, walking away from God when they're called back to him. You don't have to turn, that. it'll be on the screen, but if you're, if you're following along, you're invited to turn to Psalm 106 for a moment. We've got two passages in view. One is verses 19 and 20. And the the background of this is that they've been freed from bondage from Egypt uh, through the Exodus. They've gone through the ten plagues. They've gone through the Passover and death has literally passed over them. They've been freed to walk out and cross the Red Sea where God parted the waters and then brought the waters back over the following uh, Egyptian army who now no longer pursues them. They're on the other side of the Red Sea in freedom, at a stopping point. And Moses has just gone up the hill to get the Ten Commandments up Mount Sinai, and it says this, at Horeb they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. Can I just point out I love the songs Because it doesn't just say an image of a bull. What does it say? An image of a bull which eats grass. It tells us how stupid this idol is in its graphic imagery. And it's simple idolatry brought to us in such mundane terms, isn't it? Um, You worship a bull that eats grass? Like God rescued you from all of this, and now you're waiting for your leader to come back down the mountain, and and you're worshiping a bull instead of the living God. I mean, it's, it's astounding. Obviously, you have to get in their minds to understand why they would do that, but still, You could say the same for us, because we're idol factories, and we'll talk about that. But here's the thing about idol worship. Uh, uh, Neil Plantinga says in this wonderful book on sin, he says, if we try to fill ourselves with anything besides the God of the universe, we find that we are overfed but undernourished. Hang on to that. Isn't that a great way to say it? We're overfed but undernourished. And we find that day by day, week by week, year by year, we are thinning down to a mere outline of a human being. When we worship anything but the living God, that's what happens. And as I said, we can all create idols. We look at this and we say, well, you worship a bull that eats grass. What are you guys thinking? But we all substitute things for God in our life. And we know the obvious seven deadly sins, for instance, Pride, sloth, greed, lust, gluttony, envy, and anger. I don't have them memorized, by the way. Trying not to do them. But we see those played out in things like addictions. Maybe it's obvious ones, drugs. Maybe it's less obvious to people, pornography. If that's a problem, let's talk. But maybe it's even less obvious than that, money, power, Job, family, we can create any, an idol out of anything where we dump all of our energy over and above the living God. And even in less obvious ways, uh, we create idols when we turn inward and worship ourselves quite often in the attitudes of our heart. Again, Neil Planting, I think, points this out well. He says, the ways that these subtly get us and we begin to turn inward, and especially it's the sin of pride is the way that this, this comes out, is things like ingratitude, perversity, turning a good thing upside down, discontent, stubbornness. Right? We can make an idol out of anything, and those things uh, create those, uh, those uh, field for idols to grow within our own hearts, So we worship ourselves, we worship the things around us. Because how we use our time, how we use our money, how we use our words, they all reveal what and who we worship. And so in simple ways, we'll see in scripture, God says, you should meditate on my word day and night. And we'll say, I don't have the time, or I'm not good at memorizing. In scripture we read, God tells us not to give up meeting together a summer in the habit of doing, but I have plans or I don't feel like it today. God says in his word, and Jesus specifically says this, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And we say, but I can't bring up that conversation with my co-worker or my family member. Somebody else will probably be called to do that. And all of a sudden we're turned inward on what we want over what God wants. We end up worshiping ourselves pretty easily, if left unchecked. The other instructive moment, I think, in Psalm 106, in the life of Israel, I'm not going to spend much time on it, because I think it mostly describes itself, but it's a longer set of verses, Psalm 106, 40 through 46. This, I believe, is speaking of the exile. It says, Therefore, the Lord was angry with his people and abhorred his inheritance. He gave them into the hands of the nations, and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion and they wasted away in their sin. He took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant, and out of his great love, he relented. He caused all who were held captive to show them mercy. God gave them this freedom through the Exodus, all manner of wonderful things that came with that. Then he sent them to the promised land and it's in the promised land that they still squander the goodness of God that they have. They still squander the covenant that they have with God. They, are, they ignore, they turn away. They're not worshiping a bull that eats grass. They got other idols now where they can turn away and worship those in well. And I point these two things out among many things that are instructive in the life of Israel and their story because God has said, I, my wrath is poured out on sin and yet you hide these sins from me. And this is the path of walking away from God that we see over and over again. God gives them all of this goodness and yet they don't change course. I mean, they have moments They eventually change course to some degree, but they don't change course. They keep walking away from God. And lots of people choose this path. God has given the opportunity to respond to him in worship, to thrive even in a world steeped in sin. And far too many people say, I'll worship the cow that eats grass and take my chances in exile. Thank you very much. But if we look at verse 12, let's go back to Psalm 90. If we look at Psalm 90, verse 12, it's got this great moment of instruction. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Would that be our prayer today? What I see in that text is two different things that it calls us to, among others. One is that we prioritize what God values. Teach us to number our days that when we may gain a heart of wisdom. We're only given a limited time. And with that time, we want to value what God values. We're made in his image. And then if we're in Christ, we're redeemed to be made into that image where it's been broken. A great way to state this that, that has stuck with me is the way A.W. Tozer uh, says basically this in one of his books. And it, it goes through my mind regularly. He says, if it matters to God, it matters to me. It's a simple way to say it. I like that. If it matters to God, it matters to me. That's what developing a heart of wisdom looks like. And we can contrast in this passage, this heart of wisdom, with what happens in verse 8. Verse 8 talks about our secret sins. And here we have heart of wisdom, and there's a contrast there because we recognize, well, we recognize that secret sins aren't a real thing. Let me read from Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. Here we read, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Secret sins never stay secret. They war at your soul. They change your character so that you resemble God less and less. And the thing about it is we we think we can hide things from others, Maybe we know we can't hide them from God, but we'll kind of fool ourselves sometimes. We think we can hide things from others that we've done that are wrong, but our attitudes, our actions, and our interactions with other people are all affected because when we sin, it affects who we are. It affects our character. And that's only going to affect how we operate within the world as well. No sin is secret. God obviously knows them all. Right? If we think it through, God knows everything. God knows what we've done, our iniquities. But it affects how we interact with God's creation. There's no sin that we can commit that doesn't affect the world around us, even if we think we can hide it, because it changes our character. And it will change how we interact with God's world. And so what we see in the the text here, Psalm 90, verse 12, teaches the number of days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What I would suggest to you is that's contrasted with those secret sins in verse 8. We need to confess our sins to the living God today. Now, we say that a lot within church life, but what I mean is not simply confess our sins to the living God right now. Do that. But we actually need to ask God to search our heart. Like we also read in the Psalms, and reveal to us the stuff we're trying to hide from him so that we can confess that. Because just like we read in the story of Israel, they're kind of trying to hide some of this stuff from God. And he's like, I know what you're doing, guys. I know everything you're doing. And you're walking away from me instead of towards me. And our secret sins will keep us walking away from God, not towards him, unless laid bare and forgiven. The second thing I see from verse 12 is that we need to enjoy a steady diet of God's goodness. It's curious that The way Moses puts this, there's 70 years or 80 years, if we're lucky, is the life we get. He obviously lived before the exile, but the second exile uh, that happened to the southern kingdom of Israel lasted about 70 years. I think that's a a good little parallel to put there. If we're going to enjoy a steady diet of God's goodness, it's the old standbys that help us do that of reading his word, worshiping together in community being a part of a smaller group of people that can care for one another, praying and meditating on God's word, all of those things matter. That we digest and ingest a steady diet of God's goodness. And that we don't abide by the simple ways that we can walk into idol worship of saying, I don't have time to do that, or I can't seem to make that happen. Because those aren't useful to enjoying a steady diet of God's goodness. Those will help us walk the other way. We are made in God's image. And the psalm tells us we are to live with him as our dwelling place. In his care, in close relationship. And when we put our excuses forward, we're simply declaring the sad truth of verse 9. Our years then will end with a moan because we are already living in exile. So can I encourage you right now to take time to create a prayer as a response to the psalm, not a response to me, a response to the psalm that says yes to Jesus, the one who actually fixes the problem of the weight of sin, that says yes to God's word and yes to God's people, and it says no to those things that steal our time and keep us in exile. Create a prayer that numbers your days and takes you away from worshiping a bull while God's life-giving power is just up the hill. Let's take silence. The band can go back up. Take some silence, and then I'll close in prayer. Lord, we say yes to your Son, our only Savior, Jesus. Give us strength to reveal our hidden sins to you. You already know. Teach us to number our days so that we do not live in exile, but begin now to enjoy and delight in your holy and loving presence. Lord, be our dwelling place today. Amen.